Hey, welcome here to the Heights. You're a part of seven services over two campuses. And think about how small that is, even people joining us by the internet. And yet, this is just a little portion because we join over a billion people around the world this weekend, remembering and celebrating the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, in that vein, I thought what we might do is just kind of plant ourselves in the story and just kind of refresh ourselves with what went on there. It's a well-known story, and so it's kind of easy for us to turn our mind off, isn't it? But boy, let's just think about it fresh. Let's let it hit us afresh. I'm going to read a little bit from the Gospel of Mark, chapters 15 and 16. I'm not going to read all of it, but just some portions. And you listen and uh, just hear it afresh again, this great news and this great story. I'm beginning in verse 22. It says, and they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means Skull Hill. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then they nailed him to a cross and they gambled for his clothes, throwing dice to decide who would get them. It was nine o'clock in the morning when the crucifixion took place. A signboard was fastened to the cross above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two criminals were crucified with him, their crosses on either side of him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at that time, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up for him on a stick so he could drink. Leave him alone. Let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God. The next evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene and Salome, Mary the mother of James, went out and purchased burial spices to put on Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they came to the tomb. On the way there, they were discussing who would roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. But when they arrived, they looked up and they saw that the stone, a very large one, had already been rolled aside. So they entered the tomb and there on the right side sat a young man clothed in a white robe. The women were startled, but the angel said, do not be so surprised. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He isn't here. He has been raised from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. And that is our great story. That is our our faith and our hope uh, here and around the world. You know, I just can't help but believe where wherever somebody is on that story. And hey, we're all over the map on that story, aren't we? I mean, there's there's more people who don't believe that story than do. There's more people who don't care about that story this morning than do. But wherever somebody is on that story, surely if they put the pieces together, they can acknowledge that no set of words, no story, no event in human history has had a greater impact, has had a bigger impact, has had more impact on humanity and on history than what we just read. 
Guys, folks, think of the, the activity that has been generated by this story just this weekend. Man, there are pilgrimages to Jerusalem. There are changed lives then and now. There are sunrise services. There are Easter dresses and dyed eggs and a big boost in church attendance. And why, there's even chocolate bunnies. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of that is of the same value. But you know what? Dresses and bunnies aside... What could be the impact of that story on an individual life? What should the impact of that story be on a life? On you. I don't know that we have to summarize it or explain it in one word, but but if I was going to use one word this morning, I might use the word destiny. Destiny, a, a sense of purpose, a reason for being. Man, I tell you what, people who have that, who have a sense of destiny, of of purpose. These are the kind of people that can rise above their circumstances. They're not defined by their circumstances or what they have or what they don't have. It's inspiring to be around people who have a a sense of destiny. I I had a track coach like that. I, I had a pastor like that. And just being around these men as they lived out that that sense of destiny. I tell you what, it had an impact on my life. It shaped my life. Destiny can do that. It's inspiring to everybody around it. I'm kind of reading a book about that right now that's kind of on that subject. It's It's a book I got for Christmas. It's called God and Churchill, as in Winston Churchill. And uh, the subtitle of this book is How the Great Leader's Sense of Divine Destiny Changed His Troubled World and Offers Hope for Ours. Now think about what that, that line is communicating. Clearly these authors, there's two of them, Clearly, they not only believe that a sense of destiny is inspiring to people around you. Man, they think think it can change a world. Even even a world you don't live in anymore. Winston Churchill died over 50 years ago. And they're saying his sense could have something for us today. That's quite a bit. Now, I tell you what, when you you know the life of Winston Churchill, it is a very very interesting sense of destiny that he had. It's almost creepy. I want to read just a little portion. As a matter of fact, this is in the very first chapter, the first page of that chapter. Listen to this. It says, Winston Churchill and his close friend and fellow Haro student, Merlin DeGrasse Evans, sat talking in what Evans would remember years later as one of those dreadful basement rooms in the headmaster's house. And the conversation focused on destiny. More specifically, their own. Churchill thought that Evans might go into the diplomatic service or perhaps follow his father's footsteps into finance. Then Evans asked Churchill, will you go into the army? Oh, I don't know, young Winston replied. It's, it's probable, but I shall have great adventures soon after I leave here. Well, are you going into politics following your father? Oh, I, I, I don't know, but it's more than likely because you see, I'm not afraid to speak in public. Evans was quizzical as he gazed back at his friend. You don't don't seem at all clear about your intentions or desires. That may be, Winston shot back. But I have a wonderful idea of where I shall be eventually. I have dreams about it. Where's that? Well, I can see vast changes coming over a now peaceful world. Great upheavals, terrible struggles, wars such as one cannot imagine. And I tell you, London will be in danger. London will be attacked. 
and I shall be very prominent in the defense of London, Winston said. How can you talk like that, Evans asked. We, we are forever safe from invasion since the days of Napoleon. I see further ahead than you do, Winston replied. I see into the future. But the reason I thought that was almost creepy, his sense of the future, is that conversation happened when Winston Churchill was 16 years old. That was 1891. It was 48 years before he would become prime minister. 48 years before World War II started. And yet he saw that. That's pretty incredible. Now somebody might look at, at Churchill's background in life and say, well, you know what? I mean, yeah, it almost looks like he's telling the future there. But look at his life. I mean, he kind of came up in a, in a life that you would expect him to think like that. I mean, he's got the best education in the world. He's wealthy. He's got a family name. He's going to have those kinds of opportunities. People that run around in that circle, they're, they're going to see themselves like that. Well, you know, maybe so. That could be the case. But, you know, it just wasn't all roses for Churchill. It wasn't all the positives that he had in his life. You, you know, he did have about the best education in the world. But he was never the smartest one in the class. N not even close. And he actually experienced quite a bit of failure, both as a young person and as an adult. I think probably one of the things that affected him the most, Winston Churchill so longed, wrote about it, longed for the love and the acceptance of his mom and his dad. And they wouldn't give it to him. As a matter of fact, on the few occasions, and this isn't a broken home, on the few occasions that his father even spoke to him, he almost always communicated how little he thought of Winston and what low expectations he had for his life. Now, my experience with people, and no, it's not all-encompassing, but my experience with people is that's the kind of thing that leads us to live, to live far below a sense of destiny, not achieve some great sense of destiny. You know what else is also interesting? While this is going on in this character called Winston Churchill and this future that he sees, there's another person in history in which the same thing is kind of going on for. There's another guy that, that has this grandiose vision of the future and his place in it. He also had a less than encouraging relationship with his father. You know what his name was? Adolf Hitler. Now, I didn't say having a sense of destiny would lead you to do the right thing. I didn't say a sense of destiny leads us to do good things. No, we, we can have a sense of destiny and do something very wrong with it like Hitler or we could have a sense of destiny and it not end like we want. I mean, take Churchill. Has this great sense of destiny, achieves that destiny, and would you believe less than two months? Now, this, this is a guy that is arguably one of the great leaders in human history. This is a guy that is clearly one of the biggest heroes England has ever had in less than two months after victory in Europe Day. He's voted out of office. Now, that's not quite just an individual thing. His party lost. And since his party wasn't in the majority, he couldn't be prime minister anymore. So how would you like to achieve your big destiny? It saves the world. And two months later, you don't have a job. You know, that didn't quite finish out how I imagined. No, not really. You know, folks, we, we, we want a sense of destiny. 
But that doesn't mean that what we'll do will be right. It doesn't mean that it'll end how we want. But we still want it. I mean, don't we all? I mean, maybe we don't envision ourselves saving the world, leading the world through some great war or great problem. But don't we want to believe that when we wake up, there's a reason? Don't we want to believe that there's a, there's a purpose to my life? I'm not just a random event bumping into other random events. I'm not, I'm not just existing from one day to the next. No, we, we want to believe there's a reason. We want to believe there is a, there is a purpose. You know, you will see in almost any life that has lived significantly, and that doesn't necessarily mean public applause, but you will see in almost any life that has lived significantly, there's always a sense of destiny. But we still have to figure out what's the right destiny. And, and is that, is destiny, is that there for everybody? I mean, can seven billion people actually have a sense of destiny? Can seven billion people think my life counts, my life is for a, a, a reason, a purpose? Can that be you? You know what, folks? The answer is absolutely and incredibly yes in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is proved in the resurrection. Now, there'd be a lot of ways to explain this, to prove this, to develop this. I just real quickly this morning want to use the life of, of one person. I don't know that maybe that's enough, but, but let me look at one person. His name is Paul. And, and oddly enough, Paul kind of grew up like Winston Churchill. I mean, he had the family name, he ran in the stratosphere, he had the money, he had the education, he had the job, the influence. I mean, this is a person that's, you know, he's going to move and he's going to shake. You know, he's going to affect society. This is a, a person living for, for destiny. Now, he was not a believer in Jesus. Now, when I say he wasn't a believer, I'm not saying he didn't believe he existed. That, that's silliness. He, he, he was a contemporary of Jesus. He knew Jesus existed. He knew that he was crucified on a cross. He knew that he was put in a tomb. And he knew for a fact that the rumor was running around that this guy was alive. That, that he had conquered the grave. And, and he knew people were saying that I saw it. I'm an eyewitness to it. He knew all that. He just didn't believe that Jesus actually conquered the grave. He didn't believe that he was the Messiah, the, the Son of God. He didn't believe any of that. But you know, it's... It's actually more than just that he didn't believe. He was actually an antagonist to that idea. He was an antagonist to people who believed. He hated people who believed that. And he actually took his wealth, his position, his influence, and his destiny became attacking the fools who would believe such a story. Until he met Jesus. <laughs> kind of ruined his destiny. Now, now, when I say he met Jesus, I'm not talking about metaphorically or in some kind of spiritually spooky way. I'm saying he physically met the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it so radically affected and impacted his life, as you might imagine, it totally changed his destiny. There's kind of this interesting thing he writes in Philippians chapter 3. You might want to read that. I'm not going to take time this morning. But Philippians 3, the, the first 10 verses. And he's talking about, you know, all of the things that you and I look to and depend upon. The things he had 
for a sense of destiny. You know, the, the wealth, the education, the influence, the position. And he said, all these things that we use to be important, to find importance, these things that give us a sense of destiny, he said, they became like garbage to me. You know, he didn't say those things were garbage because those, those things can all be used for good. But he said, comparatively, they became like garbage to me. Compared to what? He said to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. The surpassing value, the incomparable value. There's no way to compare those things to the power of the resurrection. He says in another place, and boy, for me, this is kind of where I really see him honing in on his destiny. He says in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me. Far be it from me that I ever boast, that I ever brag, that I ever show any kind of great hope in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. Man, the cross, that is my hope. That is my song. That is my life. That is my message. That is my agenda. It is what drives me. It is what makes me thrive. It is what makes me live. The cross of Jesus and the power of the resurrection. That's a sense of destiny. And that's kind of why he said all that other stuff became garbage. Because I think he feared for himself. I think he fears for you and me. Because he knows we're all looking for it. We're all looking for a sense of purpose. And he had all the things that people tend to rely on. Look to. See as a help to being important. I think he's afraid those things will distract us. From the person of Jesus. See, Paul knows his sense of destiny is not going to be in what he builds or what he accomplishes or what he collects. No, his sense of destiny is knowing God. Knowing God, enjoying God. I didn't say his destiny was to be a super religious person. I didn't say his destiny was to obey the right set of rules and better than you. No, his destiny was to know God, to know Him, to enjoy Him, to, to live with Him, to live for Him forever and ever. And that is a destiny made available to Paul, made available to all. Seven billion people can experience that destiny. But we're not a born experiencing that destiny. As a matter of fact, we're kind of disconnected from that. We, we got disconnected from God, from our, our destiny by our sin, by our rebellion against God and His ways. You know, when you're rebelling against God and His ways, you're rebelling against the only thing that is good. I know there's discussion today about religion maybe being kind of the source of a lot of the problems and a lot of the wars. I'll leave that for another time and another day. I don't believe that's actually true if you look at the evidence. But I'll just go ahead and say as a statement today, God and his ways have not caused a millisecond of discomfort on this planet. God and his ways have not caused a single problem on his planet. It's our rebellion to God and his ways that broke everything. It's our rebellion to God in His ways that introduce death. It's our rebellion that leads to a life of just existing from one circumstance to the next. Hey, if you were God, how would you have met that rebellion? I think I'd have, I'd have crushed somebody. That's what I think I'd have done. Because that's what we do when people offend us, hurt us, rebel against us. We want to we get even. We want to, we you know, we're going to make sure right is done. God met our rebellion with love, a powerful love, a faithful love. That's what the scripture teaches, that the, at the cross, God demonstrated and proved his love. Because at the cross, 
God is making a way back to himself for you. At the cross, God is paying for everything you and I broke. At the cross, God is giving us a way to be restored to him and a real sense of living for purpose and meaning. And it is the resurrection that proves it. Now, folks, I I don't have a watch on it, but the statements I've just made in the last 90 seconds, two minutes, I kind of said them real simply, real easily, real quickly. And and a lot of us in here, we caught all those statements. We get it. We've been raised in it. We've kind of developed it and and we can kind of connect the dots on those statements. And we say, amen. Yeah, that's it, pastor. But maybe you're in here today thinking, wait, wait a minute. There's a couple things you just said there. I don't. I don't know if I agree with that at all. I, I think you're completely wrong. I, I think this is a cause of a problem, and I'm not sure that's, that's the answer. You know what? I, I would agree with you in that a lot of what I just said, it really demands, for a thinking, reasoning person, it, it demands to be explained. It, it demands to be proved, to be developed. But what I want to say this morning is just real simply this. Doesn't the resurrection demand that when we start exploring questions about why am I here? Where am I going? Is there a God? Has he spoken? Has he revealed himself? Why is everything broke? Why do people die? As we start answering questions like that, doesn't the resurrection say, hey, maybe start with Jesus in getting those answers? Now, let's, let's be clear. All religions say that, right? I mean, doesn't every religion in some form, some fashion, by the way, including no religion, because no religion is a religion that sets up self as God. But every religion, no religion, they all say, hey, hey, come to us. We've, we've got the answer. The others are wrong. The others don't have it. Our, our book is better. Their book is wrong. We've got the answers to everything you're, I mean, every religion says that. How do you, how do you sort through the noise? How do you get, I mean, do those religions have anything to offer? Does not the resurrection suggest that maybe we start with Jesus? If, and I did say if, if he conquered the grave, if he defeated death, wouldn't that give some credibility to his words? Words like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son That whoever, that's always been one of my favorite words in the Bible, whoever. See, he's offering an invitation here, and you're a whoever, aren't you? Doesn't matter how you have how you have acted, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what's been done to you, doesn't matter the guilt, the shame, doesn't matter what you used to be, what you used, no matter what, you're still a whoever. Whoever believes will not perish because that's not God's desire. That's not God's purpose for you being into this, born into this world, that you would just survive from one day to the next and then die. His purpose is that you would live. Matter of fact, more than live, live forever with eternal life. And, And Jesus says, and not only eternal life, but there's something for right here and right now. That's why I came into this world, that you might have life and that you would have it abundantly. He didn't say I came as well so you could have abundant stuff. No, that you could live abundantly, that there would be meaning, that there would be purpose in your life. Or what about what Jesus said to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever, gosh, there's that word again. Whoever, let's go to the next two verses so we can see that. There we go, there's that word. Whoever, whoever, you're a whoever, aren't you? Whoever believes in me. Though he die, yeah, we die, but it's like a millisecond for us now. It's not cold, it's not dark, it's not scary. It's like, oh, what happened? It's not a millisecond in death before we are in the presence of God. Because life is what he has for us. Or what about what Jesus said to Doubting Thomas? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one. No no one a thousand years ago. No one a thousand years from now. No one today. No one religious. No one irreligious. No one good. No one bad. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's a... That could be good news. That could be a very powerful statement. I think in our world today, in our culture, that's kind of a difficult statement. I mean, wouldn't we, by kind of our values and understandings today, look at that and say, gee, that seems a little bit intolerant. This doesn't seem to acknowledge maybe somebody who is searching for God also, but they end up kind of on another path, another way, uh, another name. This, This doesn't seem to acknowledge that. This doesn't seem to acknowledge what the other religions can do. But that's because religion isn't the way to God. Jesus is the way. And he doesn't close that way off to anyone. The invitation is to whoever. Are you a whoever? All seven billion people are a whoever. So it's not intolerant. But you know what? That's just me talking about Jesus' words and starting to explain them. I mean, the bottom line is... Who's the guy who said all this? Some, some mystic, some religious nut wandering around in a desert 2,000 years ago. And I'm, I'm supposed to let what he taught, what he said have some kind of effect on me today. I'm supposed to believe something or I'm supposed to do something tomorrow based on, on this guy's words. Why? Why, why would I do that? Or, or, or you tell me this guy, he died on a cross and his death 2,000 years ago is supposed to have some kind of effect on how I get to live today and, and even in eternity. I, I don't know. That sounds a little odd. And that sounds a little out there, doesn't it? Folks, I actually would agree with that. Yeah, if you're a thinking, reasoning person, that, that sounds a little out there, you know? But what if? See, I'm just going to keep saying this. Doesn't the resurrection say, hey, maybe, maybe we look at that. Maybe I start here with Jesus in trying to get answers and trying to understand all this. Listen, it takes faith to believe that Jesus rose again. That's not normal. We don't see people popping out of the grave. Okay, that's not something we're just going to, oh yeah, I've seen that once before. No, no, it takes faith to believe that. But not the faith of fairy tales. Not, 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 not a blind faith. It takes faith to have an open mind and begin pursuing, listen to me, the data and the evidence, the evidence, the historical evidence. I wasn't there. You weren't there. We're working with this data. But folks, would you believe what history shows us? And I'm not just saying in the Bible, even Roman and other Jewish secular historians and documents, when you put the evidence together, it actually takes more faith to believe Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Than to come to the conclusion, oh my gosh, this dude defeated the grave. It takes less faith to believe that. That's the easier faith. Because something happened. And we're left with understanding what? 
Listen, God loves you. He loves you. You, you, your name at your address. God loves you and he has a purpose for your life. And it is the cross that makes it possible. It is the resurrection that proves it. And that can begin for you right here today. Right now. You don't have to go home and fix something. Do something. Start something. Stop something. You don't have to take a class. No, right here, right now, today. That can begin for you. Now, you might be in a place in life where you're thinking, No, (laughs) I don't think right here, right now, today. I'm not sure I buy any of this. You know what? At best, maybe you've piqued my curiosity a little bit. Well, you know what? Would you let maybe your interaction, your collision with the idea of this resurrection, maybe maybe motivate you to start exploring? Hey, why is there death? Why, Why is the world broke? Is there a God? Has he spoken? Where am I going? Hey, if you wanted to begin that exploration or... Continue that exploration here at the Heights. We'd love that. We'd love for you to pop in here every now and then. Drop in on Sundays and Wednesdays and see what's going on. And maybe explore a little bit of that in your life. And I really do believe God will lead you to answers. I believe he'll meet you just like he did Paul. And give you an eternal and good sense of destiny. God loves you. Has a purpose for your life. It's the cross that makes it possible. And it's the resurrection that proves it. Amen? Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I I lift up to you each person in this room and whatever brought them to this room today. And Lord, wherever we are on the spectrum of, of destiny, and I would imagine there are some in here who are strong, faithful followers of Jesus, and they are, they are moving down the road, well down the road, in their sense of destiny with Jesus. There may be some others not, not quite sure. Maybe even there may be some that kind of relate with Paul before he met Jesus. They're more of an antagonist to the whole idea. God, wherever we are on the spectrum, I pray that Easter... This Easter, the one we're in right here and right now, I pray this Easter, Father, would help them, would help us, would help me take a big step forward in understanding and living the destiny you have for me in your Son, Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly how you would do all of that. I don't know if you would use a song we heard, the words we heard. Maybe it's going to be something that will still happen this afternoon. But God, I pray for each of us. This Easter, a big step forward in our sense of destiny with you. I ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.